all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy, where the doctor is always in. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hey, thank you for joining us on this beautiful morning. We're going to be talking about the health issues that affect you most. That's right. We've got a whole hour to address your health concerns. So give us a call today. We would love to hear from you. You can share your, share your comments and questions with us this morning by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show remedy at mpbonline.org. And now, Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy on NPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Well, I've been out uh, last week. I got uh, I got Mueller'd uh, with programming. Uh, that was very interesting uh, testimony back and forth. Certainly a lot of uh, controversy and uh, lots of different things on both sides. Uh, but gave me a week to be thinking about some things to uh, bring to you. Of course, we are always open on Southern Remedy uh, to um, to go over any kind of uh, questions, try to answer your questions about your health or the health of somebody else. Uh, the number to call this morning is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can always email us at remedy at mpbonline dot org with any questions that you might have. Uh, you don't have to do that during the program hour. You can email us anytime if you're up in the middle of the night and you're like, huh. I should have asked Dr. Jimmy about that. Email us. We will get back to you. And from time to time, we put all those together in sort of an email uh, show that we go over those because everybody needs to hear about that. So what's going on in the news? Hey, I got a good friend of mine uh, who has a love-hate relationship with his toe. Uh, and you're like, what are you talking about? He has gout. That's right. He's got the gout. Some people call it gout. A lot of times they'll come into the doctor's office. But the... The uh, proper name for that is gout. So what is gout and what can you do about gout? So gout is one of those conditions. It used to be sort of uh, only in, uh, you know, tend to be one of those rich man diseases. So gout, diabetes, hypertension, those, those all sort of went together with having a lot of resources. And the reason for that is it is a disorder where you basically have too much uric acid in your system. Now, uric acid is a breakdown product of all of our cells in our body. So it's something that as cells uh, reach the end of their lifetime, they turn over, they die, and other cells come in to replace them. And one of the constituents, the building blocks of those cells, is uric acid. Now, we get uric acid from animal sources, so animal-type foods, red meats, uh, fish, th- those are sort of the sources that we get uh, a uric acid from. So we have to take that into our diet uh, and eat that, those foods, and they're broken down in our body to produce uric acid. But then we also produce our own uric acid as a waste product. And there's an enzyme system for that. So enzymes are just uh, chemicals that help to break down things. We have a ton of them in the body. 
There's one called xanthine oxidase that helps in that purine system uh, to help break down purines into uh, uric acid. And then it's normally eliminated through the urine by the kidneys as the kidneys sort of filter out different things. So what happens in gout is two things. You either make too much uric acid or you ingest too much, ur- too much uric acid and it's too much for your system to deal with and if there's an overload in it. The other way is you don't excrete it. Your kidneys aren't able to handle a normal load of uric acid. And if you think about it, you know, historically, if you had a lot of access to meats, those weren't things in the past that a lot of people had access to just because of limited monetary resources. Uh, You didn't have it as much, but the people who did and ate a lot of it, those are the people who get gout. So what happens with uric acid is it, uh, you know, if if you've ever, if you can think of it this way, if you uh, have mixed up, probably did this experiment in school in science class where you had a, a glass of water. And you kept adding salt to it. And at some point, you reach more, you reach a saturation point with you can't add any more salt until it starts coming out of solution, right? So there's only so much that you can put in there. So once you reach that point with uric acid, it starts to precipitate out as little crystals in different places. And joints, joint spaces are one of the places that it does that. You can also get kidney stones uh, from uric acid, but it can be deposited underneath the skin. A lot of people who have gout will have problems. They'll have little concentrations of these underneath the skin, and they're called tophi. And they can be on the earlobe. Sometimes you'll see little nodules on the earlobe or on the back of the, uh, of the elbow. Uh, but they come out of solution and they hurt. I mean, it is an intense pain in the joint spaces. The big toe, the where it attaches to your foot, that first metatarsal joint there, that's one that's common. That's particularly if you have a flare-up of gout in that toe, uh, as my friend does from time to time. It's called podagra. Uh, it's one of the most common symptoms of gout. What can you do about it? Well, you can eat less foods that have purines in them or, or uric acid-producing foods, um, decrease your meat, meat intake. Most people sort of know what's going to trigger it. There's also some medications that, um, that are develop, have been developed. There's uh, several that had actually decrease the amount uh, that our bodies produce, so it cuts down on the production of uric acid. Uh, but between those two things, most people can control gout. Gout flares, they use non-steroidal anti-inflammatory uh, medications uh, to try to get the inflammation down. Uh, some older medications like colchicine actually decrease the production of uric acid and uh, and help with inflammation too. But it can be pretty debilitating to people. But thankfully, we've got some newer medications that can, if you take them all the time to help prevent those gout attacks, it does really well. This is Southern Remedy. Uh, we are welcoming your calls this morning. You can reach us at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. All right, we're going to go to Sue from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. I'd, I'd like to ask your opinion about something. Sure. I, re- I read in the USA Today that uh, optometrists are going to petition to start the, doing some surgical procedures on their client's eyes, and they're not medical doctors. But since you're a physician. What do you think about them taking away that, you know, the ophthalmologists are the ones who are, you know, privileged to do that operation in people's eyes. What do you think about optometrists doing that surgery? So I'd have to, I don't know specifically about the surgery. I was going to say, Sue is sicking me on the optometrist right now. So, <laughs> but yeah, so there's, uh, this is, this is a broader issue in scope of practice. So that's, anytime you hear that term in, uh, among physicians, what's going on is, you know, there's a, there's an old scope of practice where physicians and surgeons were the only people who did surgical procedures. Now we've got other people doing some of those. So you've got podiatrists that are doing some minor procedures on people's feet. You've got optometrists that are starting to do some different procedures on the eye. And really it has to do with the particular amount of training and certification and to the public. You know, this is a, this is a profession of medicine. My duty, our duty as physicians to the public, the public puts their trust in the medical profession that they're going to train themselves. They're going to keep up their training to try to make it as the best, the best care that they can give to people, the safest care that they can give. But if somebody else starts doing that, the question always comes up, well, is it equivalent, right? So if the optometrist is doing a surgery that an ophthalmologist, so that's somebody who's 
trained in medical or DO school, um, you know, and has gone for further training after that. Um, is is that the same? And no. it's it, so it's it is different. You're right, but sometimes, and we saw this with nurse practitioners for years. Uh, in fact, I've got a go to in orthopedic surgery who is a nurse practitioner that I send my patients to. And for the proceed, now he's not doing open surgeries, you know, on the shoulder or knee. But I tell you what, he can do injections just as well, or sometimes better, because he does them a lot and he's well trained. So I think you have to be careful about that and look at the certification. Usually, once somebody starts to go in an area, it's not quite as safe. So, in other words, if this is a new emerging area among optometrists, you might want to wait a little bit. That's just my personal opinion on it. But it really has to do with the training that they receive. The other area that we saw this is with the osteopathic trained uh, physicians. So... That's anybody, instead of having an MD after their name uh, for their certification as a doctor, they have a DO. And what we know now is that's equivalent. That's the same. They have, it's different. It's a different training that they get. They have some different methodologies that they're trained in. But in the, you know, in the end, they're just as good a physician as somebody who has an MD. So I'd be a little careful. And, I, and again, Sue, I don't know what type of procedure you're talking about, but you know, I would talk to, I would honestly ask the ophthalmologist about it and see what they think. Well, thanks for your opinion. appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. Always different with scope of practice. Now, certainly there's organizations that uh, advocate for that. I know the AMA is really big in having physician-led teams, but it's very interesting, the landscape. And, you know, I've been on teams. It's it's that's a good question. It's like, who's going to lead the team? And, and, you know, this is just my opinion. Sometimes some, some uh, patient teams are just as well led by other people and the doctor can be the doctor and see people and, you know, concentrate on what they're doing. It just depends. It depends on the situation. I think, as I used to say to med students uh, and residents, I used to ask them a question, who's the most important person in the room? And the answer is the patient. It's not the nurse. It's not the doctor. It's not the physical therapist. It's not anybody else but the patient. And if our focus as a medical profession, and I mean that in a broader sense, not just MD or DO, uh, if our focus is on the patient, we're going to look more and more to team-based care and having different roles with that. So, uh, just something to put out there and, and expect. Everybody wants to talk to their doctor. I get it. I get it. And I like to talk to my patients. So, all right, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, plenty of time for your calls. You can reach us this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We'll be right back after this. MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. Certainly got a lot of time for your questions. We're about 20 minutes in the hour now, about 40 more minutes worth of time that you can call in. Maybe this is your first time listening to us and you don't know what to expect. Basically, we uh, we have a call screener that uh, that 
put your call through to make sure that uh, we know sort of what's going on. Uh, but we take all of our calls live, so it's anything that you want to uh, to have either have a question about. Maybe it's a medication that you've been prescribed and you really don't know what it does, what it's for. Sometimes physicians and uh, and healthcare providers are um, uh, guilty as charged about that. We just say, here, take this, and we don't really explain it very well. Maybe you've got a question about that or side effects with medications. Be happy to try to answer those questions or point you in the right direction. Maybe it's a new symptom that you've got, and you can't quite figure it out, and maybe it's going on for a while, and you want to know what to do about it. Or perhaps it's a new diagnosis, and the doctor used that fancy language that we like to use, like, molluscum contagiosum. It sounds sort of Harry Potterish, doesn't it? Like you're casting a spell, but uh, I bet Ron Weasley would probably do that. But maybe it's something that you've been diagnosed with. You don't quite understand it. We'd be glad to discuss it with you this morning live. You can reach us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. Or as we mentioned earlier, we're always happy to take your email. We try to get back to you as soon as we can to answer those questions, but we also share those with our listening audience from time to time. Uh, but you can reach us by email at remedy at mpbonline.org. A couple more things about gout. We had a little discussion in the break about just uh, how that, why does it affect the big toe uh, more preferentially than other places in the body? Basically, it's, if you can think about this sort of like a stream, so if you've got faster moving water, it carries things along a little bit more, but the areas of the body where things sort of slow down, the kidney is one, you've got a lot of a large amount of blood flow that has to get through there and it moves very slowly as it's filtered. Um, that's one of the places that you can, and because it's filtered out in the urine, uh, you can precipitate out that uric acid. And the other places in the synovial fluid of joints, synovial fluid uh, joint spaces themselves don't have a direct blood supply, so they get all their nourishment from the synovial fluid, and it just sort of sits there. It may, you're, the cells that line it make some make it, but uh, it's it doesn't you know it doesn't move through the body like uh, like blood flow normally does. So don't really know why the toe is like that it could be because it's it's lower than the rest of the body it may be just the the shape of the joint i'm not sure i'm that's uh, that's a question i need to ask my orthopedic and rheumatology friends but uh that's one of the more common places and again we mentioned other places that you can get it certainly it doesn't have to be in the toe it can be in the in other joints in the body both large and small uh, but it's pretty nasty looking like when if you look at those crystals uh, one of the ways we diagnose it sometimes in the office is we'll take off some of that fluid. Like if somebody comes in and they've got a lot of fluid on their knee, we'll do what we call an arthrocentesis. So that's deadening up the skin, sticking a needle in that joint space and taking off some of the fluid. We can send that or look at it directly under a microscope. And sometimes just by the shape and the side, the uh, the shape of the of the crystals, we can tell which, uh, you know, what's going on there. It's one of the cool things about rheumatology you can give somebody a very quick diagnosis we don't you do that a whole lot anymore in offices but people you know physicians used to have a microscope right there and look at different things like that but if you look at uric acid crystals under the microscope they are nasty looking it looks like uh it, these these sharp little needle-like crystals uh that uh that you just imagine sticking into those uh, into that joint space at different places, particularly when you're moving around. I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like the original Superman Fortress of Solitude. That's what it looks like. All those things sticking out in the joint. So like a giant little snowflake in there. But, uh, yeah, that's a crystal arthropathies. You can have other crystals. I mentioned kidney stones, too. Certainly, it's not the most common cause of kidney stones. One of the more common things that you find with kidney stone analysis is calcium oxalate. Um, that's probably the most common one. Certainly, a common condition that we have here in the South in the summertime. And that's just because it's hot. You lose a lot of fluid. People get dehydrated. There's usually a common scenario that fits all those different qualifiers, and you get a kidney stone because that calcium oxalate precipitates out of the urine. You don't have enough urine flow because the kidneys are really wanting to hold on to as much water as possible so that you don't get uh, dehydrated. This is Southern Remedy. Uh, we've got uh, uh, an open board here. We've got one caller calling in right now, but plenty of time for you to call in. You can reach us this morning by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. 
672-7464 or send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Hypertension, I mentioned that earlier sort of as a, as a you know, rich person's type disease that goes along sometimes with uric acid and certainly diabetes as well. And uh, these are sort of the metabolic syndrome. You might hear that sort of thrown around in the news and maybe your physician said that. That's just a, a constellation, a grouping of diagnoses that sort of like to hang out together. And usually it's caused by inactivity, excess calorie intake, um, you know, not eating correctly. Uh, family history can have a lot to do with it, too, but all of it is sort of related to obesity. Um, so it can, you know, the more you weigh, the more you're going to put yourself at risk for those. All right, let's go to Willie from Greenwood. Good morning, Willie. Yes, good morning, Doctor. I'm, I'm calling Reverend to uh, the uncoated aspirin, the coated aspirin, I mean, uncoated and coated. And yeah. you, bleed a little, you bleed a little bit every now and then, like every three weeks, I know a little blood come up. Uh, but I stopped using coated, but I went back to them, so I used the orange, orange chewable. Uh-huh. So do you, you know what type of problem it might be? It might not be a problem, just what's the best aspirin to use? Yeah, as far as effect, well, let me ask you this, Willie. So why are you using aspirin? Is it something that your doctor told you you probably needed to take? or? Yes, the emergency room, when I went in, they said I had a heart failure, but also they told me that I had uh, uh, cholesterol, and uh, now I'm taking the pill for the cholesterol. Gotcha. And uh, so everything looked good so far. I just had, had my first my first cholesterol test yesterday, and now uh, they told me just take the aspirin about three months ago. I've been I've been on a regimen eighty one milligram tab every yeah. since those three months. Gotcha. Okay, that helps out. So aspirin is an anti-inflammatory agent. So you know it uh, it comes from it was derived from a bark of a tree. Uh, Indians used to chew it when they had a headache or whatever kind of ailment they had. But one of the other things it does is it, it inhibits platelets from sticking together. Now, platelets are the, the part of the blood that helps plug up places in the body that are bleeding. So if you have a cut somewhere and you're bleeding, platelets are one of the first things that sort of move into that and plug it up. So... Um, aspirin interferes with that. And the reason why it's good to use, you mentioned one of the conditions, like if you have heart disease, uh, if you've had a stroke, those are reasons to take an aspirin. Uh, now, there are many, many, many different, because it's been, it's one of the oldest medications we have, and there's many, many different forms of it. Now, the coated, the uh, enteric coated aspirin, it just has this thin coating that prevents it from uh, being absorbed directly in the stomach. Uh, so it, it, it prevents when it's going to be broken down and absorbed by the body to a little bit lower down in the GI tract. And then a non-enteric coated or the chewable ones, you're going to absorb a lot faster and a lot higher up. The advantages with the enteric coated is there's a little bit better evidence that <clears throat> a little bit of evidence that those don't cause as much stomach irritation. So one of the side effects a lot of people get, just intense pain when they take aspirin for long periods of time. Um, and that's because it can it can interfere with that lining of the stomach that helps protect it against our normal acids that our stomach makes. So, Willie, as far as, you know, what's best in your case, probably doesn't matter too much. If you weren't having any problems with heartburn or uh, stomach pain taking the non-enteric coated aspirin, that's fine. You mentioned the dose of it, 81 milligrams. It's sort of a weird number if you think about it with medication. That's actually, the, the it's been studied in the past, so that's actually how much aspirin uh, inhibited platelet function enough that you got the benefit of decreasing the risk of a further heart attack or stroke from plugging up those blood vessels. Um, anything over that, uh, at least for prevention of that, that that would put you more at risk for some of the side effects. Now, a lot of people are on a 325 aspirin, uh, and those are, you know, if you've had a heart attack or a stroke, a lot of times you'll put on the higher dose, and that's, you, you need to pay attention to those doses. But if your doctor said, hey, a baby aspirin's fine, stick with that, Willie, it probably doesn't matter if you chew it, if you do whatever. Now, <clears throat> in the ER, in the emergency room, if you go in and you were telling them, hey, I got heart disease, I've got chest pain, I think I'm having a heart attack. They may have given you an aspirin and you chew it right then and there and swallow it. And that's because right then what they're trying to do is if you are having a heart attack, they're trying to inhibit the platelets from plugging up those vessels right then and there. 
But uh, that's more of an acute type thing. And you don't do an enteric coated aspirin in the ER. But if you're just taking it day in and day out, it probably doesn't matter. And, you know, get the one that it doesn't really matter price wise either. Yeah, I mean, get the one that's cheapest. Okay, so what I do, so uh, so I can just go and take my own chewable, uh, then also the non-coated sometimes, and just, just, just stick with one and let that do. Yeah. But I'm trying to find out, then you think that, that, that so that bleeding is going to be normal, but, but like I say, it's, it's not a lot of blood, but like someone said, it could cough up a little bit, that's all it is. I don't see it no more than a whole week or two. Yeah, that that's the, and you need to let your, just let your doctor know about that, you know, from time to time at your regular checkups, but... A lot of people will have some bleeding, and sometimes if they'll, you know, if you have a coughing fit where you're coughing, 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 you might cough up just a little bit of blood. Probably not a big deal unless it continues. Or if you bump into things, people say, hey, I, I bruise a lot and I'm on aspirin. Well, yeah, that's the side effect. That's what your, your aspirin's working to prevent those platelets from sticking together so much. You just have to be careful. People will come in and say, you know, every time I shave, I get a nick, and it just bleeds, 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 bleeds. That's because it's inhibiting that platelet. Normally, it doesn't cause much of a problem. You can, if it's something on the outside of your body, you just apply direct pressure to it, and that gives it enough time to for those other things to plug it up. But, yeah, Willie, I, just, I would stick to that baby aspirin. Again, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's not going to change from the bleeding side of it, like with coughing, uh, whether you take the enteric coated or not. But I would tell your physician about that, particularly if you're you know, a previous smoker. You, you do want to make sure that's not something else going on. Well, no, I don't smoke. I mean, I, 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 I quit smoking about 10 years ago. Good for you. Good yeah. for you. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. All right, Willie. All right. I thank you very much, and yeah. you have satisfied my concern. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's a little bit different in that, in different conditions about the dose of those kinds of things with uh, with aspirin. So you have to pay attention to how your uh, how your physician is saying. And if they don't tell you, ask them. You know, call back to the office, talk to their nurse, talk to somebody else, and say, "Hey, didn't tell me a dose on that. What do I really need to be taking?" Because that's not necessarily you can still get it as a prescription, uh, but it's not necessarily something you have to have as a prescription. Aspirin is just fine over the counter. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, plenty of time for you to call in. Uh, What kind of medication problems are you having? Any kind of side effects that you want to talk about? Plenty of them out there. Glad to take those calls. When we get back from the break, you can reach us at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. We'll be right back after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you here this morning and uh, taking some calls about different things. Certainly a lot of time for you to call in. We would love to hear from you this morning. I know somebody's got some kind of questions out there that uh, not only you need to know the answer to, but other people. I can't tell you how many times we have listeners that contact us and say, you know, that was really good. I didn't ask that question, but somebody asked my question and it was beneficial to me. So, Don't think that it's just you asking that question. You need to share it with us, and we would be glad to to share it with our audience today. You can reach us this morning by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. We're going to go to Ronnie in Ashland. Good morning, Ronnie. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling. Thank you. I... uh... I have a question about a medication that I was prescribed by a urologist. Uh-huh. I had 
a little problem, and uh, because I'm kind of old and uh, older, Ronnie, we older. don't get that. So old is like almost in the grave, but most of the time it's older. Well, I, there's I a hope difference. I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I hope I'm not that far along yet. <laughs> uh, what it was, I was prescribed two medications, and one of them was tamsulosin. I think it's generic for Flomax. Uh huh. That's right which was very helpful, and the other one was a drug uh, named Finasteride, I think. Yeah, yeah. And both of them came with a three-page oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, warning warning labels and sim- symptoms and all that. And anyway, though, the Finasteride, <clears throat> I was looking down through that one, and uh, one of the things it could cause was a very serious form of cancer. And so I took it right straight to the bathroom and flushed it. <laughs> yeah. And I have not taken any more and don't intend to, but I was just wondering why or what this is all about. But any medication, if there's any chance of any kind of cancer, I don't want to take it. And I was just curious to know because I wasn't told by this urologist about this. Maybe you could help some. Yeah, sure. So both of those are for uh, what we normally call benign prostatic hypertrophy, which just means as you get older and you're male, uh, all all of us have prostates unless they've been taken out. So they get bigger as you get older, and they can obstruct the flow of urine from your bladder to the outside. And normally the symptoms are you have, you know, just a uh, you had to get up more in the middle of the night to go. You might not feel like you're emptying out your bladder completely. And both of these medications have been used to sort of shrink down the prostate through different mechanisms. The Tamsulosin or Flomax is an alpha blocker. So it acts in a, in a certain way on alpha receptors to, uh, to inhibit the growth of the, of the prostate. And it's fairly well tolerated, and people usually have a good response to it. One of the things you have to keep in mind for both of these medications or any other medication used for this condition is it takes time and you usually you're talking about you know months you're talking about at least one to two months probably more like three to six of taking them before you because it does take time to shrink that prostate down so you're not going to see the effects right off the bat uh tamsulosin is a weak um uh, blood pressure lowering agent as well so the alpha blockers also control blood pressure so sometimes they'll do that the other one you mentioned is finasteride. So uh, finasteride has to do with uh, a different system. So it's uh, a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. So it basically, um, it's going to inhibit a lot of the um, uh, testosterone system. Uh, testosterone in a male, uh, it, it can stimulate the growth of, of the prostate. So it's going to inhibit the, the, the break or the metabolism of testosterone to a different type of testosterone. That's the main way that it works. So because of that, and because that system is involved sometimes with prostate cancer, that's probably what you read on there. And if you dove down a little bit deeper, so there was a little bit of increased risk for uh, prostate cancer in individuals that took that for longer periods of time. Not everybody, very small amount of people. There's other agents out there. That's one of the good things about this particular condition is, you know, if you have anybody, if they have concerns over finasteride, and and the the other name for this would be Proscar. You mentioned Flomax for uh, Tamsulosin, but uh, Proscar is the... Um, is the is the name for finasteride. It's also marketed as Propecia, as a topical agent for hair loss, and it works the same way. It's inhibiting testosterone synthesis in the hair follicles. Uh, I'm not aware at those levels if it's really something that could cause that. The other thing that you may have seen with that is if you've got any kids in the house, they don't need to be touching this. I mean, if, even if they touch the finasteride, there's a chance that their uh, their systems, particularly even somebody who's pregnant, probably shouldn't be around it. And that's more of the of the topicals, the old sprays for Propecia. But um, yeah, Ronnie, I, I would bring that to your urologist or your primary care person's attention and just say, hey, I'm not comfortable with that. Back to your the main question, you know, why do we have things like this that might cause cancer? You have to understand some of the data that goes into that is you give like a thousand times the normal amount to a mouse and they develop cancer. And 
that's pretty common. There's even a lot of common foods that you give in those amounts. You can get cancer. If you think about all cancers, particularly the ones that are most common, like colon, breast, um, uh, they, they are directly, uh, you know, there's a direct correlation between the foods that we eat over time. So about a third of cancers, even the processing of foods, if you overload the body system, uh, and have high t- turnover of cells, that's an increased risk for cancer. So even though it may be listed on there, it may be extremely small, and you may never see it at the doses for which it's prescribed. But in a situation like this, there's other things out there that you could try. So there's other medications like Avidart is another one. I don't know if that's been one that's been prescribed for you, uh, but that may be one that they can use either in conjunction with uh, uh, tamsulosin or by itself. So there's other things, other alternatives for that. But, uh, yeah, that is a risk. Uh, it is a known risk for finasterides, very small risk, but it, it is something that and, – and those inserts, they have to list everything. That's part of our normal drug, uh, rigorous drug uh, evaluation, is you have to list every single side effect that ever happened in any patient in those trials, regardless if it was directly caused, if the cough – was seen in five individuals, they're going to have it listed on there. So that's that they want to overshoot with what they give you. But um, in this case, Ronnie, you got all other alternatives. Well, the the tamsulosin worked just fine for me. I mean, w- within like a week. Uh-huh. And then I started reading the information. I ran across that. And, and I don't, well, I've got some grandchildren in the house and, uh, I think you got alternatives. You might want to just stick. Was there a reason why they wanted you to, they, they added that to the Tamsulosin? Is that what they yeah. did? That's what I'm wondering, but uh, I don't have another doctor's appointment until my prescription runs out. And I'll find out about it then, but I was listening to the radio and you were available, so I thought I'd ask you your opinion. But Well, we are here for you, Ronnie. Well, I, I appreciate all this. I sure do, and thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you for calling. All right. Let's go to Cliff. Good morning, Cliff. How are you doing? Uh, good morning, Dr. Jimmy. Fine. How are you? Good. What's your question this morning? Hey, my question is, uh, about two years ago, um, I was playing around with uh, one of my sons that uh, is a diabetic uh, with his blood testing uh, equipment, and my blood sugar was 280. Uh-huh. I was like, holy moly, I might need to go to the doctor. So I go to the doctor, and they're like, oh, you know, you're type 2 diabetic. You need to start taking this medication. Um, they started me out on metformin, but also gave me uh, Simvastin and said, you know, just needed to watch my cholesterol. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so I started on metformin. I wasn't seeing any changes in my blood sugar level, so they moved me to in Vocamet, and uh, I started seeing my blood sugar come down, but not to the levels that my doctor wanted me to. But then my my insurance plan quit covering in Vocamet, so they moved me back to metformin. And I'm just not seeing any changes in my blood sugar to come down. And my A1C is running like nine. Yeah. And, um, you know, but I the weird thing is I don't have any... Any symptoms other than high blood sugar, I mean, I don't have, you know, I, I don't see that there's anything going on. And yeah. I'm wondering why I'm not seeing any changes and, and what, uh, you know, do I need to continue just taking the metformin even though I don't see any change or should I look well, into some other medications? You, you got a couple of different alternatives. And and that's, I would say, Cliff, that's a common thing. You know, most people think, my goodness, if my blood sugar is that high, I should have symptoms. And while most people do, not everybody does. So they're not going to, you know, go to the bathroom more often or, uh, you know, not uh, have other kinds of, of symptoms with it. So, And that's one of the reasons why we screen for it in, in just about anybody. Um, so back to the metformin. How much, do you know how much you're taking of the metformin right now? Yeah, they actually had me on, uh, I'm taking 1,000 milligram pills uh, morning and evening. Okay. So that's closer to the to the maximum dose with that. And if you, it's unlikely that you're going to, if you switched to a different agent that you're going to, like you mentioned the Invocana, so that's a, a different class of diabetic medication. It's a SGLT2 inhibitor. 
Nobody wants to know about that, but that's what it is. But uh, but it works a little bit differently, and most of the time you would add that to taking the metformin. Uh, but if, right. if if that much metformin is not getting you down to an A1C of 7 or less, which is where your target should be, then um, you're probably going to have to add something to that and going up on the metformin. You can go up to 2,500 milligrams total a day. So right now you're at 2,000, so you yeah, could... Yeah, they say there's some, some kidney um, risk when you get that high on it. If your kidneys are working fine, usually that's not a, a, as big a problem. <laughs> if, you're, okay. if your kidney function is down, but yeah, I'd trust their judgment on that. The other thing is insulin. So people, you know, some people are like, I just don't want to do the, you know, the sticks and everything with it. In combination with metformin, a once a day long acting insulin has been shown to be very beneficial. It's probably going to, that's going to be the most powerful thing to get your A1C down and your blood sugar down. Um, it is, you do have to have, you know, certain things you have to watch out for. You're more likely, if you don't eat for any reason, you know, regularly, you may drop your blood sugar a little bit too much, but if you want to get it down and get it controlled, that's that's one of the the main ways to do it. At a at an A one C of nine, uh, some of these other classes of medications I don't think are going to quite get you less than seven. So, if you were my patient, I'd say I'd at least have a discussion with you about insulin and just see if that's something. And again, the long acting ones is just once a day. Uh, and then based on what the A1C is and what you're getting at home, that you could change that. Now, I've had plenty of success stories with patients that changed what they did, their lifestyle and their diet, if they had room to change. Regular exercise where you're getting your heart rate up and then muscle building too. If you go to the ADA website, the American um, uh, Diabetic Association's website, they're going to have a ton of stuff in there about exercise. And it is. I actually did all that. Oh, good, 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 good. Yeah, I've started exercising more, and I've been doing this for probably a year now, doing the uh, cardio and weight. Um, yeah, my my hardest part to do is, is the meals. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm in sales. I travel. Oh, that's difficult. Three weeks a month, yeah. I'm on the road, and it's really difficult. To, yeah. To, to eat properly, and that, that's probably my biggest downfall is my my meals. <laughs> Hey, my, I, I got a, I got one patient success story, and he was a, a construction foreman at the time, and um, he went. He tried all kinds of different stuff. He tried like you know low carb. Basically, what he had to do was cut out carbohydrates, and he ate a bunch of meat basically while he was on the road. And while it may not be the healthiest diet to eat, it will get your blood sugar down. Uh, so you got to sort of figure out. That's the good thing about. There's not really a diabetic diet anymore. It's about things that you can do with portion control and moderation on different things. So, But at, to get you down where you need to be quickly, insulin would be what I would go to. And it probably, you know, one one shot at night, it's, and there's small needles. They go just underneath the skin. There's, you know, it's, it's much less risk than people think about it or pain. Um, mm-hmm. It's that, that would be what I would do. Well, what about some of these new drugs like the Ozempic and the Trulicity, the once-a-week uh-huh. type deals? Are, are, are people having any success with those? Yeah. So more expensive, you're probably going to get your A1C down about a point with that. So, again, you're not quite to where you need to be, but it's certainly worth right. a try. A lot of people have to fight their, you know, on their insurance plan about that just because yeah, it is more expensive. That's one of the things I'm struggling with is that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I feel like I have very good insurance, and um, they just – they do not like uh, diabetic medicine, especially these new ones that have come out. Yeah, um, much, much more. You. They want you to do all the, you know, and the old ones are fine. I mean, they do a good job. I bet your A1C would probably be up around 12 or 14 if you weren't taking that metformin. Really? Okay. All right, Cliff. Well, I'll have a conversation, and uh, I appreciate you taking my call. All right, you're welcome. All right, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to go to Catherine and Pat, who have been patiently waiting. And got time for you to call in if you would like to uh, reach us this morning. You can reach us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 We'll be right back after this.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. Closing out the hour here with a couple of callers. And I uh, want to encourage everybody, if you've got some questions that come up after the show's over, please email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. We're going to go to Catherine, who, are you in Texas, Catherine? Uh, yes, I am. All I'm right. I'm actually driving right now. But. Awesome. Well, stay safe. <laughs> What's your question this morning? Oh, my question is, uh, my son is 17 years old, and recently he noticed a small bony growth at the end of his collarbone is what it looked like. So we had an MRI done, and just yesterday the doctor took it off. And uh, he said, I was hoping it would be just a bony outgrowth, but he said it had cartilage in it. Uh And I wasn't able to ask him a lot of questions. I was just wondering what could it be? So you can have bony tumors, and they fall into two big categories. There are the the benign ones, so those are the ones that um, that aren't cancerous per se. Uh, and then there's there's other things that are out there, and it, it's it's fairly common. There's a lot of people that have these. Now a lot of them, you know, the vast majority are benign. You really need to get the tissue like your son had. Uh, sometimes they can, by x-ray, they can look at it and say, well, this is probably a benign lesion, but most of the time they'll at least do a bone biopsy um, and then send it off for pathology. So they're going to do some tests to make sure it's not one of the more um, you know, malignant causes of things. So cartilage and bone sort of go hand in hand. So cartilage is where bones come together. So it's an articular surface, and every bone is going to have a cartilage cartilage layer at those interfaces uh the the clavicle or collarbone is the same way as it attaches either to the sternum the breastbone or the shoulder joint uh the at the acromion but um you can have cells that arise from cartilage cells that are the most one of the most common ones is called a chondroma uh, uh and those those tend to be benign but again you have to you have to really go through all the processes of testing those and unfortunately, Catherine, it's not something that's really quick. Like if you just had it done, it may be a week uh, at the most probably that you're going to, you know, before you get a, a definitive answer on that. But really, it's hard to speculate on that until you get the biopsy results back. And if it's one of those benign things, it's probably fine. You're not going to have anything else to do about it. And again, the other ones, it just depends on what type of of bony growth it is. If uh, if it's a malignant thing, so osteosarcoma or or other ones, that's a. a but but you can getting the biopsy was the first step in that. Yeah, and he said that he first noticed it about eight or nine months ago, and then it looked to be it looks a bit like a half inch in size by the time he finally told me about it. So it was about eight or nine months. Do these things grow that fast? Yeah, they can. And they're subject to the same hormones that control bone growth. So if you think about, you know, bone growth in adolescence, late adolescence and growth spurts, they're gonna they're gonna increase in size about the same time that, that other bones are doing that. So uh, of course anything that increases in size that fast, you wanna, you know, jump on pretty quick. Sounds like you did that. Uh, but hopefully the the biopsy results should come back, uh, you know, pretty quickly to to know what to do next. Okay, so just wait for the results. But is this a common thing in adolescents? Do you see? Yeah, uh, see yeah, and thoughts? and at the at the long bones we see it more often. So like the the humerus in the upper arm or the femur in the leg, uh, that's a fairly common thing that we see. Like it's a, it, it usually that's it's the same kind of presentation that you mentioned. It's just a bump. Okay, and could these things be caused by an injury or anything? And I, neither I or he recall any injury that he had. Sometimes it can, but not, not necessarily. It doesn't have to be from an injury. Okay. Thank you, Doctor. All right. Be safe out there, Thank Catherine. God. All right, real quick, we've got about a minute and a half. We're going to go to Pat in Hernando. Good morning, Pat. Good morning. I am currently taking 5 milligrams of amlodipine, 
and I'm taking 10 milligrams daily of rosuvastatin, and I'm taking 2.5 milligrams of anagrelide. And um, I have been experiencing severe pain in my fingers uh, some days. It's not constantly, it's not nonstop, but it does happen, and it, happen, it, it happens frequently enough where it's a di- discomfort. For example, when someone shakes my hand normally, it hurts my fingers. Uh, also, I have been experiencing swelling in both hands and um, swelling in my ankles and in my feet. And I'm wondering if these symptoms are due to a reaction to either or all of the medications combined. It's possible, probably not from the combination necessarily. Uh, I'll take the edema first real quick. So that, or the swelling. Swelling is a common side effect of the amlodipine, which is a blood pressure medication. And it's dose dependent. The more you take, the more likely you are to have it. It's not a serious side effect. A lot of people have good blood pressure control, and they're like, you know, I'll just stay on it. The other symptoms, it might be from, I'm going to, you know, take a stab at the cholesterol medication. That might be where uh, that uh, sometimes you can have sort of aches and pains. Usually it tends to be muscle and not joints. Um, I'd bring that to the attention of your physician and get them to look at it, but I don't know of the combination of all those. So that was for hypertension, diabetes, and high cholesterol um, or the conditions that you're being treated the for. The amlodipine is due to uh, essential thrombocythemia. Oh, okay. So they... uh, Wait a minute. Did I say amlodipine? I'm sorry. The anagrelide is due to essential yeah. thrombocythemia. Yeah. And that, that may be one of the, you know, uh, that may be for the joint pain too. Pat, we're going to, we're at the end of the hour, so I apologize for cutting you off, but I would that bring that to your, um, to your physician's uh, attention. Well, to thank everybody for calling today. This has been Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy signing off. Our uh, uh, program is always here at 11 on Wednesday for you to call in. So uh, check back next week, and we'll be here. Stay tuned for Here and Now coming up next on MVP Think Radio. This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy. Live blue. It's good to be blue. More at bcbsms.com. Quiet weather across the north, and then the further south you go, we have a better chance of seeing some showers and some scattered thunderstorms today. In Horn Lake, we're looking at sunshine this afternoon. Our high temperatures will climb in the upper 80s to near 90. Mainly clear to partly cloudy tonight, and overnight low will drop down into the upper 60s. Starkville, expected to see a few showers or storms this afternoon. Otherwise, a mixture of clouds and sunshine are high near 90. Tonight, we will be dry with some patchy late-night fog, and overnight low in the upper 60s. And in Macomb, extra clouds and sunshine, about a 50-50 chance of showers and storms today are high near 90. Isolated showers and storms today, low 70s. I'm meteorologist Sally Russell. This is Think Radio.